Welcome to the OKC First Church of the Nazarene podcast. At OKC First, we are learning to do three things. Friendship with God, friendship with one another, and open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit (laughs) OKCFirst.com. Thanks be to God, really? (laughs) I... uh, had this thought this week. We, we are in the midst of a long sermon series. Throughout common time, um, ordinary time, or the season of Pentecost, it gives me this long stretch of time. And, and so looking at the texts available to me um, felt like it's a good time to take a deep dive into the Gospel of Luke, one of my, if not my favorite gospel, very difficult gospel. <laughs> To be honest with you. But you know what? It's a difficult gospel. And um, I feel sorry for you guys. <laughs> because there's so many days, so many days, that our Messiah says to religious people, and to whatever extent we understand ourselves as religious people, you just get the deep impression that, he, that this, these words are being spoken to us and sometimes at us, that leave us in this place where I'm not sure how you respond except that, okay, 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 I'm, I'm, not, I'm not measuring up. This is another one of those sermons. <laughs> I can feel it. I, I, feel that, I feel that pressure to um, say something to you other than what's here in Scripture. I feel that pressure. I feel that pressure to circle some passages and, and either skip them altogether or have somebody else try to make some sense of them. This is one of those Scriptures. Um, can, I, can I tell you this up front where this particular Scripture is concerned? The problem is not the money itself. Now, money is a little bit like nuclear power. It it has the capacity to be dangerous, but in this particular parable, the money in and of itself is not the problem. But what I'm going to talk to you about today and what ends up being the problem is something that we all have to take very seriously. And so maybe this is another one of those days that uh, all of us, including the person up here, all of us have to look very hard at what it means to be a disciple. And then ask ourselves, am I a disciple or not? Today's uh, passage is not so much about Um, the money as much as it's about blindness. Blindness. Now, um, in a particularly light moment this week while I was preparing, I looked up all the different reasons people might be blind. And and here from a a WebMD sort of website, here are, in case you're wondering, here are some of the reasons that, that folks might be blind. People with eye diseases like macular degeneration or glaucoma, okay, Uh, People who are are diabetics, perhaps, might struggle with blindness. People who have had a stroke. Uh, Eye surgery patients, which was particularly troubling troubling to me. People who work with or near sharp objects (laughs) are at risk of blindness. Uh, People who work with or near toxic chemicals. 
Uh, oftentimes, premature babies suffer blindness. Now, all of these things, uh, medically, we try to work with. We have something of a, of a method to, to work with all of these forms of blindness. But there is another form of blindness that medicine has no answer for yet. In fact, I would go so far as to say there's another form of blindness that God can't even do anything about without your participation. And that blindness goes like this. For those of you who are out in podcast land, I got a message this week from someone saying, you did something, and I want to know what that was that you did, because couldn't tell it on the, uh, couldn't tell it on the podcast. So if you're in podcast land, what I did was I just said there's another form of blindness that medicine struggles with, and perhaps God struggles with, and it's the blindness that happens when I intentionally place my hands over my eyes and refuse to see. The blindness that you won't acknowledge is an incredible obstacle for you, for God, for Lazarus. For the people at the gates, the people in harm's way. I've already said it, this, this is a difficult um, stretch within a difficult gospel. We are in that stretch of the book in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is walking, his face is set. He is walking toward the cross. And we have said this before, but hear it again. Toward this cross, at which point there will be this huge collision between different ways of being alive. The Jesus-styled, Jesus-shaped way of being alive is going to come into conflict with all other different kinds of forces and, and powers and authorities, and one of those powers is the, the power of the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, they're, they're coming at the cross with a completely different way of being alive, and so they will, they will push that way of being alive on Jesus and kill him with it. But they weren't the only perpetrators. There's another way of being alive that was also uh, at work in those days, and Jesus struggled with it too. But it was also, it was, it was really kind of troubling and tricky because it had to do with the same kinds of faith that Jesus kept talking about, the same scriptures even that Jesus was talking about. There was a whole group of people who believed certain things about God and about faith and the way this faith would be manifested that saw things so differently than Jesus did that they thought he needed to die. This Jesus is a threat, they would say. This Jesus is a threat. And we've got to deal with these threats or else. And you can see it. We're in chapter 16 at the beginning of chapter 15. I believe these passages sort of hang together. At the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus has hosted a dinner party. And there are people present at the table that day that the religious folks, the Pharisees, did not think deserved to be present. They, they shouldn't be present. In fact, their being present at that dinner table rendered Jesus somehow wrong and unclean and gave the Pharisees more evidence that we had to deal with this Jesus because if this Jesus redefines normal, we will be on the outside looking in, they thought. We better deal with this guy before he redefines normal. Church people still believe that. We better deal with this Jesus and remake him and remake God 
Because if this Jesus is given an opportunity, he's going to redefine normal, and it's going to be a struggle for us. And so, according to Scripture, they're grumbling, they're grumbling, murmuring, grumbling, they're angry. And in response, Jesus tells a series of tales, parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Then he starts talking about money. Last week, it's one of those passages I would rather have handed off to somebody way smarter than me like Dr. Tashin, but he wouldn't take it. Talked about the shrewd manager or the dishonest manager. And now this week with Lazarus. Take a look at this. Just before our passage today, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these stories, heard this whole discussion, and they ridiculed Jesus. Here's why. Here's why. They thought Jesus was getting scripture and theology wrong. Now, this is not unique. This happens a lot of places in the Gospels. The religious authorities, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, many times take issue with Jesus' read on Scripture and theology. Just quick heads up. If you differ with Jesus, where the interpretation of Scripture is concerned, you, you could be wrong. And really, here's, here's what you should know. There was present at this point in time, in the theological universe that particular day and time, there was present this very odd belief that money, possessions, wealth, status, anything that might be in the blessings category could be and perhaps should be, hear, hear this now, could be and perhaps should be understood as the stamp of approval from God. So if you have, so within the religious community at the time, if you have stuff, if you have lots of stuff, if you have more stuff than that person, God is stamping God's approval more so on you and your life and your choices than on that person over there. In other words, there were folks at that particular place and time who had it within them to say to the poor in the area, man, they must have done something wrong. They must be currently doing something wrong, like not working. They had it within them to say, God prefers me because I have a job. You can tell because I have money. I'm blessed. Hashtag blessed. I don't know if they used the hashtag part, but I bet they did. <laughs> blessed. You can tell it. Look, look at us. Look at us. We're part of the in crowd where God is concerned because we've been stamped with approval, and that's why they struggle with all of these outsiders, these poor folks, these, these complete outsiders at the table with Jesus who purported to be a rabbi. That's why they struggle with it because they had the Pharisees' seats at that table. Those are our seats. Everybody knows it. God knows it. Those are our seats.
In other words, they had a theology. The teachers of the law, it wasn't just that they were teachers of the law who happened also to love money. Hear this. It's that they had a theological system and a framework within which there was great room and opportunity and capacity for them to love money. Scripture's pretty clear about this. Money is not our problem. The love of money becomes the problem. And all God's people said, I hope, I hope so. And the Pharisees had a theological system in which it made some sense to love money because you were loving that which God had gifted you because God was blessing you because you were right in the way you were doing everything. And the folks over there, they were wrong. And, and wrong consistently and continually, so much so that eventually you go ahead and blame them for being wrong. Consistent, they, look at them. They're always choosing poverty. Oh, okay. All right. Let's, let's do this now and get it out of the way. John, would you stop preaching political sermons? <laughs> I love you, church. You, if you don't know that I love my church, you're just not paying attention. Can I get an amen there? The gospel's political, y'all. If in the process, I work hard on this stuff. <laughs> I, I ache over it, agonize over it. There are times when I say, God, there's gotta be another way. There's another way to say this, right? I work hard on this. As my predecessors have worked hard on sermons and I find myself saying things that I don't really even want to say. I'm doing the best I can to wrap my brain and imagination around this Jesus character. And if it comes out as partisan, if that's how you receive it because of the filter you came in with, that's on you. My suspicion is Jesus wouldn't have made a very good candidate, amen? So can we put that to bed? None of this is partisan. If it is for you, read the Bible. Pharisees had a problem with Jesus, and, and, and perhaps one of the problems, one of the problems they had with him was a political sort of problem, because politics has to do with how we are woven together. How do people organize? How do they cohere? How are we together? They had a problem with how Jesus was organizing the world and how it is that we would all get together. I mean, take a look at all the people around the table who shouldn't be around the table. And in response to all of this, Jesus tells a story which is a complete shock to their theological system. Watch this. He starts off by saying, now you are those who justify yourselves on the side of others, but God knows your hearts for what is prized by human beings, perhaps even religious human beings, is an abomination in the sight of God. And he jumps into this parable. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple, which means he probably had some royal blood in him somehow, and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously, and I'm told that means a lot of food and a lot of good food. <laughs> Every single day. It's one thing to have this once a blue moon when it's a special occasion, but every single day, what this tells us is, in the economy of the day, this tells us that this guy was fabulously wealthy. Fabulously wealthy. So wealthy that the... Okay. 
the suggestion is this guy is so wealthy that other people are less wealthy because of it. They're all, oh, there he goes again. He's making another political statement. No, I'm not. This was the belief where economics were concerned way back when. This was the belief that if you have someone who has taken on overlord status financially, he or she has done so, primarily he, on the backs of somebody else. And whether or not you believe that to be the case today, that was the assumption then. And so hear the parable accordingly. Let the parable speak on its own terms. Will you do that? One of you will. I'll take that. And at this man's gate lay a poor man named Lazarus. The only parable of all the parables, the only parable in which someone is given a name. How interesting is it that this is the name that we have? Not the name of the rich man. The name of Lazarus. A poor man covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. There is this famous piece of art that actually is, is painted to give you some idea of what this is supposed to feel like. And, and this is, this is right here. This is the parable, painting of the parable of the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. Notice anything odd about this? Can't see Lazarus. That's the point. That's him right there. This painting was painted to demonstrate something about this parable. This painting was painted to communicate this parable. And I think it does a remarkable job, actually, because you have to work to see Lazarus sitting at the gate outside the kitchen where the dogs have more access to the food than Lazarus does. So they both die. And it's interesting, isn't it? Lazarus dies. Perhaps Lazarus dies of starvation. Perhaps it's, it's complications um, from being licked by dogs all the time. I don't know. But Lazarus passes away. And according to this, okay, this passage of scripture is not supposed to be a scientific appraisal of the afterlife, okay? Is everybody... We're telling a different story. We're not telling a story about whether or not there are flames anywhere, okay? But the story goes way out of its way to say, God cared for Lazarus and carried him all the way to Abraham's chest. And it says, in a dramatic contrast, and the rich man died too and he was buried. So at the time, and it wasn't just, um, all the faith systems at the time seemed to understand there to be some kind of afterlife, and some of these faith systems did understand there to be a, a fiery afterlife, especially when they were painting pictures of it or, or dealing with it in an artistic sort of way. So verse 23, in Hades, where this, old, this uh, rich man was being tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. The rich man, who never saw Lazarus because he was blind. 
And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and have Lazarus go do something for me, please. Father Abraham, put Lazarus to work for me, please. Truth matters, he still doesn't see him, does he? If he sees him, he sees him simply as a means to an end. The rich man's end, he doesn't see him. Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus on a very important errand, please? Because Lazarus can run errands for me. Just have him go dip the the tip of his finger in water and and come and cool my tongue. Do something for me, for I am in agony in these flames. Watch this. But Abraham said, and there's great compassion in his voice for the rich man. But Abraham said, child, to the rich man, he said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, but Lazarus, in like manner, received evil things, But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, watch this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. You guys know me. Uh, I really like the book of Revelation. I do not think the book of Revelation is nearly as scary as some other people think, right? I think this is horrifying. Because guess when the chasm was fixed? Before Lazarus and the rich man died. Now the rich man, to his credit, finally starts to get it. Oh, whoa. It matters then how we live. It matters how we live. It matters that we choose blindness. The folks that we don't see when we choose not to see them, that all matters, and it seems to really matter to God, so I need to get word to somebody. (laughs) He said, okay, then Father Abraham, I beg you, please send Lazarus on another errand. To my father's house, for I have five brothers or five siblings that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And here we're gonna get to the point, get to the part that I think is most horrifying. It is not the presence of the flames that is most horrifying to me. Abraham replied, we don't need to do that. They've got everything they need to make the right decision. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets. They have everything they need to cure them of their blindness. They should really listen to what's already there. That, my friends, that, my brothers and sisters, is perhaps my new most horrifying verse in all of scripture. Turns out we're accountable 
for what is in Scripture. Stuff like this from one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 58. Two religious people, Isaiah writes, or God says through the prophet, you all are so busy fasting, trying to control me by your fasting and your religious ritualizing, but is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house where you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own family? This is what it means to be alive and a person of faith and the people of faith. This is what it means. You think it means, oh, wow, it means I accumulate all of this stuff and then I sort of reconnoiter all of Scripture and God so that I can say with a straight face, look at this, God blesses me because I have more. You've missed the point. The point of having more is to help more. If you've spent a lifetime constructing a name and amassing your wealth, you will die, perhaps with God, without God using your name. Now, if you and I are blind, and in our blindness, we are constantly walking by or stepping over the folks that we might otherwise be able to help. Let me promise you something else. God knows their names. Pharisees had a superiority problem. <laughs> The Pharisees somehow believed that the exercise of their faith allowed them to feel some sense of superiority when it seems to be the desire of God that the people of God in the experience of faith should not be feeling superiority but solidarity. Empathy. Not sympathy. Empathy, compassion. I heard a couple of times this week something that really troubles me, so is it okay if I tell you about it? In response to what I still believe to be a Christian posture, here's what I heard. I don't want to see that stuff. do that again. In response to some of what was said this week and experienced this week by your church, I heard twice, my life is hard enough. I just don't want to see that stuff. That's a blindness that is a challenge for you, a challenge for God and a challenge 
for the Lazarus at your gates. Not superiority, but solidarity. Not superiority, but empathy. If, if Christian practices do what Christian practices are supposed to do, they don't leave you superior. They leave you empathetic. I mean, compassion literally means to suffer with. I want to see that. I don't want to see it. Keep that to yourself. I don't want to see it. Who is it that you're willing to suffer with? Well, actually, John, I belong to a religious tradition that tells me that suffering is indication that I've done something wrong, so I don't want to suffer. And I certainly don't want to suffer with somebody else who's done something wrong. That mindset, and I'm sure that's nobody in the room, but that mindset is the reason for the existence of this parable to poke a giant, fatal hole in that kind of thinking that understands the run of life to be evidence, to be evidence of how God loves these people and not these people, punishing these people but helping these people. Does God help and punish? Yes, yes. God can do whatever God wants to do. But God seems to be saying here and everywhere else in Scripture that God is on the side those who cry out. Amen. And God is in hopes that as the people of God are shaped to be the people of God, as the people of God are shaped away from the modern renditions of the fertility cult that see blessings as evidence of the blessing of God, It is the hope of God. By the way, I don't know how you know this unless you are involved in habits and practices. I'm really busy. Figure it out. How will you be involved in the kinds of habits and practices that allow you to discern the voice of God amidst religious voices that may not be the voice of God? <sighs> I have some voices that I refer to, and some of them you all know by name. And others, I don't even know, but I know their names, like Brene Brown. I mean, and she has done some things on empathy that are just fantastic, and, and I want you to see this and, and just hear this. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. 
Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. What makes something better is the connection. Now, when there's a connection, it may be that your life posture will be edited so that there can be moments when you do enter into their particular situation with help, resource. I want you to be aware of this. I want to, I want to say it right out loud, and I want to be accountable for it. Here's what we hope happens as we encourage you and push you to be involved in spiritual disciplines and practices, everything from just faith to prayer practice to disciple to all the different beautiful ways that CR practices openness and vulnerability to Stephen ministry. We have lots of options for you. And because we want to say to you, all of you, board members, non-board members, members, non-members, we want to say to all of you, God has in mind that you would do more than just sit kind of like you are right now in a theater and appreciate the production. I am so glad you're here and I hope you do appreciate what happens here. But God is not done with you because you've been here. We do important things here, and we're going to do something really important here shortly. In addition to all of that, in order to give you and me the chance to actually be this odd kind of person who's colonizing creation a little bit at a time, we must have these spiritual disciplines and practices. We must have them. Practices, means whereby you are formed and shaped toward Christ-likeness so that you will have the capacity, did you hear these four things, these four elements of empathy? Have the capacity take, to take another's perspective into myself. That is in short supply this week. To withhold judgment, and I love what she said, withholding judgment is tough because we so enjoy it. To recognize the emotion of the other, whether you think it's justified or not. And then to have the capacity to communicate the above. 
to a person in need. When we try as best we can to navigate you toward spiritual practices and disciplines, it's so that we can all, me included, have a better shot of doing that. Are you in the parable? That's a great question to ask yourself. After every parable that you read, where am I in this parable, okay? Well, you haven't died, so you're not the rich man who died, okay? And perhaps you're not Lazarus because, again, not dead. You're the five siblings. I'm amongst the five siblings. The people who have within arm's reach all the resources we need to be developed toward Christ-likeness. Now do you see what I mean when I said at the beginning, man, sometimes these are just sermons you just survive. (laughs) Until or unless you remember that perhaps the greatest demonstration of solidarity and empathy that the universe has ever seen in its entire history happens in the incarnation when Jesus does all of this for us. When Jesus self-empties, (laughs) when Jesus self-empties and comes all the way here and invites us to his table, despite the grumbling out there, Jesus saw fit to come all the way here, where we are, to invite us to this table, to be the world's greatest demonstration of empathy and compassion and solidarity. And we remember it and rehearse it every week in the hopes of getting better at it. If you're helping us, would you please come and set the table, Heavenly Father, We need you to bless these elements. We need you to bless these elements so that they can move us and shape us in ways that we would never be moved or shaped otherwise. Bless the bread, bless the cup. And as we hold these elements in our hands, God, may may we remember just how it is that you came to us. You came all the way to us in the hopes of identifying with us. In the hopes of putting skin and flesh on love. In the hopes of opening blind eyes. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come to the table where we remember and celebrate every week the posture of God towards us. The posture of God, broken body and shed blood. Can you imagine it? What other God glories in broken body and shed blood?
just this one. I'll ask you to stand, to exit your pew to the left, and then to come forward with your hands cupped to receive this gift. You can't get it any other way, it's a gift. To receive this gift. When you receive the bread, that person will say to you, this is the body of Christ broken for you, but don't eat it just yet. Keep that piece of bread, dip it into the cup held by the person standing right there. When you do, that person will say to you, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Receive it today as the world's greatest, history's greatest move of empathy. God comes to us even while our legs are not long enough to get to God. So after you take and eat then, I hope you'll find a place to pray. And I hope that prayer begins where it needs to begin, in the heart of God for you, the choice God makes regularly, continuously for you. I hope it's a spirit of gratitude that moves this prayer along as you say something really hard like, okay, God, now what? What would you do with me? The answer is something, for sure, for sure. Who is welcome at this table? All of you, every last one of you who understands your need for grace. You don't have to have this figured out yet. You have to know that you need grace. That qualifies you here every week, every time. If you can't come to us, we will come to you. Jason and Katie will make their way to you. You'll be up and around. I, I like the fact that we work really hard to get your whole body involved in this ritual. You might want to make another trip, a special trip down here, just to dip your fingers into this bowl full of water, meant to help you remember the moment when we celebrated your inclusion. The people of God, the people with a purpose, the people with a calling, and maybe your life is hard enough because maybe you do have some Lazarus in you. It's hard for you to remember where you belong. Find your way to this water. Or maybe you're one of the five siblings that's left. And you need to be reminded that you have what you need to make good on the promises that you made. Think about it. It was on the night that he was betrayed. And our Savior took bread and he broke it. Blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat it, remember me. After dinner, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you. This is me coming to you. Remember that every time you drink it. After you eat and drink, I hope you'll find a place to pray. Any kind of prayer here at these mourners benches. But prayers for healing of any kind beside padded altars and someone will meet you there to pray that very important prayer. And now, all across the sanctuary, I wanna invite you to stand, exit your pew to the left and make your way toward these gifts of God meant for the people of God.
have blessed us. You have blessed us all. You have blessed us all. So we bless all. Thank you for Christ and Father, forgive us. Forgive us when we have chosen blindness. God, forgive us when we have chosen blindness and, and, and we've not known it. Remind us, Lord, that in your great empathy, you are always on the way to us. Always. Always. 
In fact, Lord, may that be the source, the resource for our movements in faith, that we, that we would live out of this deep sense of gratitude, perhaps even embarrassed by how often it is and how consistently you reach toward us on our best days and on our worst days. You close the gap. You cross the miles to get to us. You did. You always do. May we live out of that sense of gratitude. May that shape our responses to the people at our gates. May we understand ourselves, especially around this table, as beggars in need of grace but the happy recipients of grace. We are grateful, Lord. We're grateful for all the different things you are doing in and through us. Open our eyes. Open our eyes to all that you are doing. Open our eyes to the situations at our gates shape us to be people not of superiority, but of solidarity, empathy, compassion. In other words, shape us toward Christ-likeness. We're going to continue now in some words of prayers of intercession. Many of you have come into this room with personal strife. That could be in your family, it can be in yourself, it can be in a workplace or your home, your neighborhood, school. So whatever strife, stress, anxiety you bring into this place, in these next few moments, would you please pray for yourself and ask God to, by his presence, bring a peace in the midst of strife that maybe you haven't ever experienced before. I think every person in this room who's praying in these moments knows someone who is suffering and so in moments of compassion and moments in prayer to suffer with, would you think of that person who has some sort of strife that needs a touch and a hand of God? And that can be something as significant as cancer. And that can be a broken relationship. That can be loss. In a few moments, I'm going to mention some names. But you know, you've carried someone who you know needs a touch from God. And would you pray for them? for God's presence and his compassion in these moments. We continue praying for those people that God has brought to your mind, but for those of you who are looking for someone to pray for, whisper prayers for people whom we love, like Derek Doris, his family and the loss of Derek's dad. 
can offer a prayer for our friend Lynn Caprera. Can offer a prayer for someone who's here this morning, Debbie McKenzie. God, that might heal her cancer. For those who aren't here with cancer, like our friend our June Adams. Pray for the difficult week that James Shea and Carolyn Shea have had. That God might surround them. We've prayed for moments of our strife within ourselves and within those who we know. Now we want to pray for strife in our world around us. That can be within our state, within our nation around the world, the strife and the violence and the things that keep people apart and keep us from compassion and empathy, things like religion and politics and race that at times incite violence and conflict around the world. So God, we pray big, courageous prayers that God in your infinite grace and mercy that God, maybe even through us, that you would allow there to be peace, compassion, empathy, and love in the midst of division and heartache and brokenness and broken systems. So God, heal, transform, and use us in the midst of a broken world. God, we ask that you would use us in ways that you've taught us to pray. And one of those ways we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, is through the Lord's Prayer. And so church, would you pray along with me, hoping that at some point you'll live into this prayer in your daily life, or that you might aspire to someday live a life that reflects this prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. And we'll pray it using debts and debtors, and the words will be on the screen in front of you if you're not familiar. So let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.